it's the story of our lifetime, really, and our children's lifetimes, obviously. Uh, more their story, I think, than our story in some ways. Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello, I'm Nicholas DeMille. Welcome to Episode 3 of Science Town. In a world where freshwater sources are dwindling, the desalination of salt water, either from brackish groundwater or from the ocean, is a viable solution. The trouble is, desalination, as it's done now, is highly energy intensive and can be ecologically damaging. So how do we do what we need to do to generate clean water without causing additional problems? Has anyone cracked the code on sustainable desalination? In this episode, we speak with a range of experts on energy, water, and the environment to try and get to the bottom of this method of clean water production. You know, the science on this really is settled. The climate is changing. It's because we're pumping carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So we don't need to give the sort of deniers their due in every story. I mean, you know, political policy stories sometimes... It's necessary, but for the science stories, there's really no scientific debate. That's Henry Fountain. He's a climate reporter at the New York Times. Journalistically, once um, kind of got over that, um, it's it's more a question of um, what you focus on, and it's difficult to figure out because there's so much happening, and there's so you know so much bad things happening, and there's a bunch of good things happening too in terms of people, you know, really smart people trying like people here at Kaust, right? trying to figure out how to deal with climate change. Talk a little bit about why desalination in particular became a, a focus and, and why you're interested. I've always been interested in, in water issues, and I didn't think we were writing enough about them. So I just proposed to my editors, I said, listen, you know, I'd love to just focus on water for a while. These glacier stories that I did were part of it because glaciers provide water for agriculture around the world, water for drinking, water for whatever. But I've also, because I'm a kind of engineering, fan of engineering and geeky kind of in that way, I've always been interested in desalination and, uh, you know, grew up with this idea that, oh, it could be, this, you know, the solution to the world water crisis, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, once you start learning about it, you realize it's not necessarily a solution for everywhere. And there's a lot of nuance to it. And there's a lot of technical challenges. And, but I just thought, well, this is an interesting part of the water problem. What is that water problem as you see it, again, from the, the sort of macro perspective? Yeah, so, you know, I don't, I don't know how many countries are in the world, but there are certainly quite a few countries, of which Saudi Arabia is one, that are technically considered water-stressed. Water they don't have enough available water, natural water, not desalinated water, to meet a certain threshold that the UN defines. And I forget what it is. It's like 500 cubic meters per person or something. And there's countries all over the world that way. And in the United States, there's states that the people are, are considered water stressed, New Mexico being one of them. You know, a place like Saudi Arabia, it doesn't have much groundwater. It's using it a lot. It's not being recharged by there's very little rain here. The groundwater is being steadily depleted. There's almost no surface water, right? There's no rivers or lakes. Permanent, everything's temporary when it rains, right? 
they do impound, they have something like 300 dams in the country, I think, and they impound rainwater, which helps a little bit. They have a real challenge. They just don't have enough water, and they've, they've known this for a century. I mean, the first desalination plant was, was built in Saudi Arabia, I think, in 1906. Wow. Yeah, in Jeddah, I believe it was. And they've been doing it on a large scale since the 50s. And, you know, Saudi Arabia has a lot of oil, obviously, and wealth because of the oil. And so it can afford to burn the oil to make the water because it's expensive, both in terms of money and in terms of energy, to desalinate water. There's a lot of other countries around the world that don't have the resources um, and either are facing water problems now or as the climate changes, as precipitation patterns change, et cetera, et cetera, they're going to be facing water challenges. And if you consider like a place like India, which relies on both the annual monsoon and on the uh, Himalayan glaciers for its water, the monsoon patterns are changing because of climate change and the glaciers are disappearing and will, the flow will be significantly reduced, most people think, by the end of this century. So they're gonna really, you know, they already have water problems there, significant ones. The city of Chennai, basically declared it was out of water a couple of months ago. Right. This is zero. Um, day zero. Day zero. That's what they called it in Cape Town. Right. And I think that's sort of the, the nickname for it now, if they run out of water. And Chennai, Chennai had a had a similar thing. It sounds very apocalyptic. It does. I mean, it, if you know, all of a sudden you turn on the tap and there's nothing there. And the question is, will they be able to afford things like desalination, both in terms of the cost and in terms of the energy use, and then there's the bigger question of, if we're burning fossil fuels to take the salt out of water, can the world afford more emissions related to fossil fuel burning? So the question of developing renewable energy sources to run desalination plants is a big issue. And it's something, again, that Saudi Arabia here is addressing. So it seemed like, for, you know, in terms of doing this story, it seemed the thing to do was find a place where they do it. And this is the place where they do it more than any place. And where even here, where they have the resources to do it, they realize there's challenges ahead. So they're trying to make it more efficient. So the people here are actually working on ways to make it, you know, desalinate water for less money, less fuel, make it a much more efficient process. So it seemed like a good place to base a story. If you had to sort of paint a crude picture of what this thing is, uh, you you suck in some salty or brackish water, as right. you say, then what happens? So there's a couple of different ways to do it. The, the basic way that um, that the Saudis did, you know, until, it was the only way they did it until like the 1970s, I guess, is you distill it. You heat it up and form steam, and then the steam is pure water, not salt. You boil it, and then uh, the steam condenses, and you have pure water. That's the, that's the very basic method. That's very energy intensive. If you think it's like it's like putting you know a million tea kettles on your stove and heating them up, and you know it's going to use a lot of a lot of energy. Um, you know, obviously over the years they've figured out ways to make it more efficient, and it's actually pretty efficient now. There's different ways of doing it, and some of the people here are working on ways to make that even more efficient because Saudi Arabia still has a lot of those kind of plants. They're called either multi-stage flash distillation plants or multi-effect distillation plants. So that's the that was the first way it was done. And there's still some of those plants around. 
Uh, but the main way it's done now is what's called reverse osmosis. And it's simply um, use an incredible amount of pressure, force it up against a membrane, and that separates the salt molecules from the water molecules. So what you end up is you end up with a stream of pure water, pretty close to pure water, and you end up with another stream of brine. You know, generally speaking, it's disposed back into the ocean. I mean, it's generally a localized problem. It's not, you know, it's a big ocean, as they say. So <laughs> pumping all that brine into the ocean, complete ocean, is not really going to affect the total ocean. But locally, it can really have an effect. And in an area where you have a lot of desalination plants, like Saudi Arabia, that it can really start to add up. So it's an interesting, you know, it's really an interesting subject. If you can solve some of these challenges, I mean, it's never going to be, you know, I don't think we're ever going to have a future where all our water, we'd never have to worry about water again because it's all coming from the sea. I don't think that's really realistic. But you could certainly get to a point for a lot of countries, it's a part of the solution and it's not a, economic and environmental costs are not as high as they are now. So, you know, it's, it's one of these things, it's kind of like, well, here's a, it's not really a climate change solution, but it's a solution to one of the impacts of climate change. And um, there's some positive things to it. Thank you for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Cutting edge tech, science, and startup culture. Science Town. Uh, at the moment, based on GWI data, the whole world uh, water demand is about four and a half thousand billion meter cube per year. Uh, but the naturally available water from rivers, precipitation, and so on, is about four thousand two hundred. That's Kim Chun Ng. He's a professor of environmental science and engineering at Kaust, and he's also the co-founder of Medad. So there's a shortfall a little bit. And currently, the amount of desalinated water in the world is about 100 meter, million meter cube uh, per day. So that makes the makes up the shortfall. But it is projected that by the year 2030, the total demand going to be even higher, about 6,009 from 4,005. So therefore, there is really a big shortfall. So the only viable solution is to have seawater desalination in many countries. There are three typical methods, that is seawater reverse osmosis, or SWRO they call it. The second method is the thermodesalination, which, is, which consists of MSF, multi-stage flashing, as well as the MED, which is a multi-effect distillation. And uh, in the GCC countries, the thermodesalination is still the dominant uh, methods because of two reasons. One is the seawater around the Arabian Gulf is, is a bit high in salinity. And the second reason why thermal is uh, dominant because the Gulf is frequently hit by algae blooms, harmful algae blooms. When algae bloom occurs, the desalination plant, particularly the RO types, have to shut down for six weeks. And with the water reserve less than three to five days in most countries, such shutdown is not possible. Whereas thermal desalination, on the other hand, is more viable right. and uh, they can withstand the, the severe water conditions available in the Gulf region. The LG blooms have contained many uh, very toxic uh, uh, micro microbes like cyanobacteria, which is mo 1,000 times tox more toxic than cyanide. 
So a little bit of that when go through the membrane can cause uh, severe health hazards. Right. But overall, membrane is uh, gaining ground uh, in the world. About 65% of the world systems are reverse osmosis. But because of the challenges in the seawater feed, thermal desalination still remains strongly uh, in this region. I think you were in Singapore before yes, um, coming yes. here. So, so what are things that Singapore is doing that could be possibly uh, translated to the Gulf? Singapore is a very small country, uh, maybe 720 square kilometers. So membrane is a good method to go in Singapore because of compactness, easy to, co- easy to locate because, uh, because of land scarcity. Only certain part of the land is available for desalination. So far, they have been getting water from four sources. One is from Malaysia through the pipelines. The second one is from natural precipitation, the rain, which is catch in the water catchment and then kept kept in the reservoir. The third method is desalination. And the fourth method is in Singapore, we recycle the, the sewer water, what we call the new water. So that is what we call the four taps of water for Singapore. And Singapore is very successful in, in treating uh, this uh, sewer water and currently is contributing to about more than 25% of the total water, water supply to Singapore. been involved in developing this MedAd uh, Medad, yeah. technology. Yeah. So yeah. talk a little bit about why uh, you went in that direction as opposed to yes. RO. So when we when we look at one of the more efficient thermal desalination method, which is the multi-effect distillation, uh, the current method is constrained by the lower temperature limit. It cannot go down below 40 degrees because it's cooled by seawater in the condenser. On the upper limit, there are constrained to 65 or 70 degrees because of possibility of scaling and therefore the number of stages one can design in these temperature limits is about six. And explain what a stage is. Stage is, is uh, you put the you put the uh, a heat in and that heat evaporates the seawater that is sprayed onto the outer surface of the tubes and that, that that vapor then condense in the second inside the tube of the second stage. I see. When condensation takes place, it releases the heat of condensation that creates another possible evaporation for the seawater that is sprayed on the external tubes. Wow. And that is repeated until six times, yeah. until it sees the condenser. So, so then, do I understand it correctly that if you add more stages, you're making it much more efficient. And yes. it sounds like you're saying you, you can almost triple the efficiency getting up to those 15 as opposed to 6. Yeah, almost triple, two and a half to three times, depending on the temperature level. Of course, as you go down in temperature level, it's about two times. But initially, if you increase the temperature, compared with the conventional uh, MED, you are tri- you're tripling for the same heat input. Exactly. So, yes. so for the same amount of energy, yes, yes. you're getting twice as much water. Yes. So then you built, this isn't just a concept. Yes. You built an entire plant. Talk yes. Uh, I built a small pilot in the lab, uh, in, in Cow's lab, in Building 7. Right. So there are panels on the roof that are 
They are supplying heat source uh -huh. for the regeneration of the of the absorbent. Then the absorber is then ready to absorb more water vapor, causing the desalinate water vapor to be uh, uptake into the silica gel bed. Those are the beds of the silica gel, four beds. I see. And each bed has about 36 kg of silica gel. Wow. So, so to what degree does that offset having to input grid-based power or whatever? The, the grid-based power is only for the vacuum pump and the water pumps. The heat to run the plant is from solar. Wow. Uh -huh. So that must save quite a bit of energy. That saves quite a bit of energy, yes. This plant has been here since 2013, uh, when I was a visiting professor. And then 2015, I joined full-time to coast. Wow, okay. Yes. Do you guys actually get water out and test it and drink it? And uh, not yet, not yet. Uh, we can, but not now, because <laughs> we have to go for post-treatment. We don't have a post-treatment yet. We are just looking at the, cap the desalination capacity and the yield. So we haven't done the drinking portion yet. <laughs> but that is a very straightforward procedure to do post-treatment. What, what has to happen in post-treatment? post-treatment, you treat the water, kill the bacteria by UV or ozone. And then after that, you add back the salts, calcium salts for our bones, up to an uh, acceptable level, maybe 150 ppm. So once we add it up, then it's, it's suitable for drinking. Otherwise, if pure distilled water, you will bleach your calcium from the bones. Okay. Yeah, otherwise uh, too pure. Upstairs is the MED plant, which we can go up and have a look. I'd love that, yeah. Yeah, we take a lift up. It's, um, it's quite a noisy facility. Uh, it's very quiet already. Just <laughs> <laughs> a noise of the pumps. Yeah. There's no moving parts. The advantage of this cycle is almost no moving parts, except for the pumps and the valves. Is this typically a, a setup that would be outside, or would it be always be inside? Outside, outside. Yeah, in the lab environment, that's why it's in, inside. Right. It can be built. It can be outdoor. So what you see here is the MED unit. There are four stages. Each row is a spray of seawater on the top of the tubes. There are four rows, and last one is a condenser. The condenser is then connected to my AD through the two big pipes. I think further, you've built actually a, a whole plant in Riyadh. Do I have that? Yes, uh, we, we had some collaboration with Kaxt uh, in Riyadh. But that is done by, not by me, but another company that took our patent. I see. From, um, from our company, they took the business license to operate in Saudi Arabia. Right. They are the one that responsible for the building. But the technology is the same. Thank you for speaking. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Science Town, brought to you by Kaust. On average, about a liter of milk takes 2,000 liters of water. So when you go to the supermarket and get a liter of milk, there's 2,000 liters of water that has gone into the production of that. That seems incredibly it's, it's, it's crazy. And when you go and have a 300-gram steak, there's probably 5,000 liters of water that has gone into the production of that. Wow. So it's this, this concept of, of um, you know, water footprint, the water footprint of humanity, but also the water footprint of the, uh, the food and products that we uh, that consume that I think we need to be aware of. That's Matthew McCabe, a professor of environmental science and engineering 
and the Associate Director of the Water Desalination and Reuse Center at KAUST. Just so that I, I get it, yep. 5,000 liters of water sure. is like, it's a large roof tank or something, right? Like that's a pretty Yeah, 5,000 liter, that's, that's, a, that's a, not, not a roof tank. That's a, that's a, yeah, that's a tank you have on your property. <laughs> you might have, you know, two, two five kiloliter tanks to, to right. supply yourself for water, you know, if you... Or a small above <clears> ground <throat> pool, one of those uh, round yeah, ones. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. You know, one of the, one of the pools. So that's... that's for a know, steak. For a steak. Yeah, and that, that's that's the trade-off, and it's something that's not well Shocking. recognized. Yeah, you know, even your your your, your chocolate bar, your your the coffee that you have in the morning, the cup right. of tea, all of these things are using water in their production. On average, I think the 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 figure that I'm familiar with is around one and a half to two cubic kilometers of water is produced annually from desalination, which is a huge volume of water. Yeah, and most of that is just for you know, everyday activities. Mm-hmm. In agriculture, in the kingdom, we estimate it's about ten times that amount wow. of water that's being used, and and that's cattle and sheep and no, that's that's just for the just crops. For the... That's just for the crops. So all of the centre pivots that we that we monitored, we worked out around you know sixteen to seventeen cubic kilometres of water per year. But the interesting aspect of this is now that we have this uh, framework for providing near real time prediction. Mm-hmm. We can go back in time. We can look to see how the development of agriculture has changed in the kingdom. We can see how the number of pivots have increased or decreased. Are these pivot numbers being affected by the introduction of uh, policies or uh, subsidies or the remo- removal of subsidies that the, uh, the government might be implementing mm-hmm. to allow them to better manage and control the activities of water use going on within the, the country? So this is something that I think is uh, hasn't been able to be uh, looked at in that sort of granularity before, right. to be able to actually see, okay, well, if, if we say we can no longer grow fodder crop, outlawing the growing of fodder crops, that's right. things like alfalfa that you might feed to the dairy cattle mm-hmm. that produce the milk and other products for, uh, for consumption in the kingdom. And does that mean that it has to be shipped in? Then? Right, that has to be shipped in. This is a really interesting aspect because it brings into account this concept of virtual water. You know, the idea that within all of the foodstuffs and, uh, you know, industrial products, you know, from clothing through to you know, coffee grains to, uh, to our dairy products, there's water trapped in the, in the production of that. Talk a little bit about why on earth you would want to quantify all the water on earth and then what that what that leads you to. Yeah, sure. So, you know, essentially it's uh, like your personal finances. Okay. Yeah, you know, that's the, the, the easiest analogy is that um, you want to know how much you're spending, how much right. you're spending, what you, what, how much money you have in the bank to begin with. And uh, ultimately your goal is to grow your balance and not go into the red. You, know, you don't want to be spending more than you're making. And the only way to do that is to be measuring your inputs and outputs. You know, with uh, the advent of satellite systems and space-based platforms, you really, for the first time, are able to get a global perspective on some of these variables of, of interest, the hydrological cycle the variables, evaporation, rainfall, uh, runoff, for instance. Um, and that really has only been the last 30 or 40 years. And 
up until relatively recently, the last few decades, there weren't any missions that were dedicated specifically for hydrological variables. Missions as in as in satellite satellites. missions. Yeah, yeah. They, they were often either set up for telecommunication purposes or defense purposes, and then they were able to be inferred with the measurements that they were collecting anyway, some hydrological variables of interest. In more recent times, with the recognition that we really need to be able to quantify our uh, inputs and outputs uh, in terms of the water cycle, there's been some dedicated missions alongside other climate missions, measuring ice sheet dynamics, measuring rainfall from space, measuring snow and ice, and uh, probably most recently the soil moisture, trying to measure how much moisture is actually trapped in the first few millimetres of the, uh, the soil on Earth. So uh, adapting an observation uh, strategy that is, is dynamic enough to monitor these different variables uh, at the timescales that they occur mm -hmm. is one of the challenges with space-based sensing because you put something up in orbit and it has a defined orbital cycle, has right. a defined frequency of observation. So. Most often that has been on the daily basis. So it'll rotate around the Earth a number of times, but as the Earth spins around uh, beneath it, it is only coming over that one place once a day or perhaps twice a day during the night and during the day. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's been a challenge, is how do we take processes that we only observe infrequently but that we know happen very regularly. Right. And CubeSats, uh, uh, I think, the topic that we were talking a little bit about before. Yeah. And that's a, a kind of a new approach to satellite observation. So to expand on that, the traditional approach has been to put all of your instrumentation into one big system. And by big, I'm talking the size of an SUV or, or comparable dimension. And to launch it up into space. And to do that, it's very expensive. You're talking billion dollars. And that's, wow. uh, that's over a long period of time of, of planning of the instruments and getting approvals and uh, testing, etc. So it's it's expensive to put things into space. Mm -hmm. It's about ten thousand a kilo, I think, even at the, the the best rates now. So the CubeSat concept kind of upends that. Instead of putting all of your eggs in the one basket, so to speak, you look to produce lots of smaller, cheaper systems. Mm -hmm. And having those smaller and cheaper systems, you can launch them at different stages, different times, and you can launch many of them. So instead of launching one, one ton satellite, you launch a hundred uh, several kilo satellites. And with that new constellation of systems that are all rotating around the Earth, you can start to get this very high frequency repeat time mm -hmm. uh, and, and high frequency, high resolution in space uh, retrieval that you couldn't get alone with a single system. So in a place like the Gulf, you fly over, there are thousands of these center pivot farms you can get a sense for how much is coming up of up of them as opposed right, to precisely and that's a great example because one, one of the, the the questions we were trying to ask is how much water is being used by agriculture yeah uh, in the in the peninsula in the well even in saudi arabia and by far and away the largest user of water in the kingdom and and the largest user of fresh water globally is agriculture and in particular, irrigated agriculture. Mm -hmm. And Saudi Arabia is not unique in this in that the vast proportion of that irrigated agriculture is coming from groundwater systems, mm. your bank balance. So if we can monitor how much water is being evaporated, transpired from the center pivot fields, 
we can get an indirect estimate of how much water is being removed from the groundwater systems. Mm. And that allows us to understand that, that flux, that change of storage. In Saudi, as in many other parts of the world, these groundwater systems are ancient. They were formed tens of thousands of years ago. Right. We don't get a lot of rain in the Middle East, so we're not getting a lot of recharge to those aquifer systems. So our bank balance is not being credited. Right. It's just being debited. We're bouncing checks. We're bouncing checks. <laughs> we're, we're, we're eating the, uh, the water away, literally, because this is food that's being produced from these center pivots, and, and you mentioned yeah. There's many of them. Well, we, we actually went and quantified how many there are. There's about 35,000 wow. of these center pivots in Saudi Arabia alone. And with these new observations, we can identify on a daily basis and within field basis mm. how much water is being used. And, and that's, that's a valuable piece of information, not only for water management side of things. So if you're a government agency trying to uh, protect and quantify mm -hmm. the water that you have stored within these uh, reservoirs, but also from a farm management perspective. You know, are you overwatering or underwatering parts of your field? We can look at the crop health. So, in keeping with the the sort of math of water, if you will, is it better, for example, to desal water and grow things locally if we do it hydroponically or you know, in in a way that uh, reduces evaporation? Or is it better to import water in so much as, you know, you have them grow the lettuce in the Netherlands and fly right. it? Or, you know, what, what on balance is a, is a better choice for a country? Well, this is something I think uh, we're still trying to grapple with and still trying to balance and manage because mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be country specific. And okay. it's going to be, uh, uh, you know, at the end of the day, how much uh, money that country has to spend on food. So rich nations are probably not going to be greatly affected. They will be able to source food from wherever else they need it. Uh, it's the poorer nations and developing nations that are going to be under greatest threat. And that's where we see the largest population growth occurring as well. So this is another big challenge going forward into the future. But it's not feasible to grow the volumes of food that we, that we require with desalinated water. You know, I just used the example here of of two cubic kilometers of water, you know, let's say uh, as a rough estimate being produced from desalination, but we need 20 cubic kilometers to grow our food. Right. And we don't really grow that much food here. We're, we're growing uh, less than 10% of the food that's actually being consumed. So there are options to look at uh, you know, vertical farming and, and greenhouse uh, production for, for, for uh, foodstuffs, but there's a very limited varieties of, of food that you can grow in those systems as well. You're not, yeah. you're not growing your major cereal crops, you're not growing wheat, you're not growing corn, you're not growing rice in a vertical farming system. You're not growing it at a greenhouse. So those, st those staple crops that the majority of the uh, world's population rely on for, for their sustenance and survival, they can't be easily integrated into new agricultural systems. Wonderful. Thanks for talking with us. Great. Thank you very much. Cheers. You're listening to Science Town. Yes, I'm Carlos Duarte and I'm marine, uh, professor in marine science at Coast. Why is brine such a tough thing and why do there need to be some out-of-the-box solutions for it? Yeah. 
uh, amongst the many things we throw in the ocean, brine is certainly not the worst one. Because uh, brine, when we desalinate, we take seawater, we concentrate uh, salt to get water that is free of salt, and then we release it back in the environment. Right. So we are not really releasing back in the environment anything that wasn't there to start with. There is a little caveat to that, and it's sometimes there are additives that are used in the desalination process for various purposes that then gets discharged. But the brine itself was already in the ocean and is going back into the ocean. Yeah. The problem is to delivering that salt back into the ocean in a concentrated manner where it can create a number of problems. In environments with limited uh, mixing and limited energy, like the Arabian Gulf and to some extent some environments in the Red Sea might be, then discharging large amounts of brines can disrupt ecosystems, can impact directly on the organisms, can suffocate ecosystems because the brine as it flows in the ocean is heavy and it sinks and it forms a layer over the seafloor and sediments that prevents oxygen diffusion and asphyxiates the organisms in the seafloor. Therefore, we either need to deliver uh, brine back in the ocean along with mixing so that 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 is diluted uh, rapidly and mixed with seawater rapidly, or else we have to find ways in which we can reuse the brines. So when I worked back in Australia, I found uh, just serendipitously that there was a search in a request for licenses for salterns, so for salt uh, operations in the shoreline. So I will, I wonder why Australians are interested in in uh, mining salt. Mm. But it wasn't about the salt, it was about the rare earths that are contained in the salt, like the lithium and so on. And there's so, man, so much demand for these rare earths for to power all of the cell phone technology and new electronics that even the amount you can retrieve from salts, it's important. So there is value on brine, but the lithium is probably 0.00 something percent of the total of the total uh, mass. So once you retrieve the lithium, you can also retrieve gold and silver and so on. Most of the mass is still there. So in this challenge of uh, brains for brines, I think what the Red Sea Research Company and Cows that are partnering to uh, partnering to uh, run this uh, want is to pick the brains of the global community to find additional ways of delivering uh, value from from brands. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. We spoke about so many things that didn't fit into this episode. To hear a longer version with Carlos Duarte about carbon-fixing footwear, about how seaweed might mitigate cow farts, and how blue carbon might help save the world, check out our bonus episode entitled Carbon-Fixing Machines. Crossing disciplines and crossing borders, Science Town. You know, I started 10 years ago at Cows. I was uh, one of the founding faculty members. Now, ever since I started in this place, I have always been amazed by um, the amount of solar energy available uh, in the kingdom. At the same time, you see that there is almost 
very, very little fresh water available in the kingdom. That's Kaust Professor of Environmental Science and Engineering Peng Wang speaking with my co-host Ben Stevens. So that's why when I started here,、uh, my research、uh, focus has always been using solar to treat and to produce more fresh and drinking water for us. My background, my PhD was actually on a completely different topic. So I was working on soil remediation. So this solar energy for、uh, clean water production, when I started here, it was a completely new topic for me. It took、uh, us a lot of time to get started and、uh, to establish our research in the field. I'm very hopeful that this technology can really. Produce much-needed drinking water for those who are in urgent need of those. I here I want to mention, besides application in the kingdom, there are more than 800 million people in the world who currently has no access to clean, safe drinking water. There are more than 200 million human hours per day. Uh, used to just transport fresh water,、uh, especially in underdeveloped countries, for the entire family. Therefore, we hope that as long as we can make those technology affordable to them, there can be a lot of human hours saved this way. And、uh, if this time can be spent on something more productive, such as education, so this will、uh, make the world much better place for them. As well as for us,、so、we will work very hard to、uh, make those technology or devices competitive, and of course, with low cost, so they they can be utilized、uh, globally. What sort of levels of、um, purity are you getting? So this is thermal、uh, evaporation distillation process. So the water produced by those processes can be very clean. So we didn't see significant amount of、uh, impurity in the water produced by the devices. At one point, we even、uh, worry about this water might be too clean because <laughs> people do need、uh, minerals in their drinking water. So I would say that、uh, those processes tend to produce very clean water. So I think you've you've touched on your hopes for this field in the next five years, but are are there any more specifics that that you need to see happen or would like to see happen in five years' time? I'm also hopeful that、um, because for those devices you can have、uh, electricity and fresh water at the same time. With fresh water available in some special places like arid and even semi-arid region. You can plan many things that is typically not possible、uh, otherwise. Like you can start thinking about having some agriculture field along the coast、yeah. of、uh, Red Sea. You can start thinking having some、um, sheep farm along the、uh, coastal lines in many dry places. There are many potential opportunities. We are also very hopeful that、um, for our next generation of the devices, we want to have fresh water production, and we also want to have zero liquid discharge. And if possible, we vision that the water production process in this device can help to cool down the PV panel on the top. This way, 
you can have more electricity being generated, you can have clean water, you have no waste discharge. That would be great for us. Thank you to all of the scientists who took time out to speak with us for this episode. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes, Alex Aries, and Ryan Yang Yang. I'm Nicholas DeMille with co-host Ben Stevens. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.